0: Monticello.
1: This is Radio Catskill coming up next in place of Making Waves. And in honor of the tail end of National Poetry Month, we've got a couple of segments of Studs Turkle's Conversations with Poets. That's going to take up the next half hour here. And then after that, we'll get into the latest episode of the Women's International News Gathering Service.
2: We real cool, we. Left school we lurk late we strike straight we sing sin we thin gin we jazz june we
0: die soon three times I laid the kingly wig on him and thrice did he put it down was this the move of a greedy hipster?
3: Well certainly the eloquence of Willie the Shake here You know why they
0: call him Willie the Shake Why Because he Shut sure. up, everybody.
3: Kerouac <laughs> said, well, this then would be a beat generation, let's say. I, everybody's beat, everybody's uh, sort of worn down to a point where they'd be able to receive God. Do you feel defeated for getting oh, no, the label no, beat itself? No, I it have no, so. No, no. so far have uh, reached God, I think, and I'm going to go beyond it now. What See, is there but, beyond God? Ah, that's it, and I'm going to find it.
4: In celebration of National Poetry Month, this is Studs Terkel in Conversation with American Poets, a series of short programs drawn from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, a collection of more than 7,000 programs from his daily radio show that aired on WFMT in Chicago. You just heard excerpts from talks with Gwendolyn Brooks, the incomparable Lord Buckley on Shakespeare, and the beat poets Peter Orlovsky, Allen Ginsberg, and Gregory Corso. I'm Robert Polito, president of the Poetry Foundation. Today, we'll experience how poetry can perform the uncanny task of channeling the voices of other people. First, we'll hear Alma Stuckey, Tennessee-born, Chicago-based poet and performer, whose poetry summons up a multitude of voices from America's past, above all the experiences of slavery. Stuckey gained recognition as a poet rather late in life, in part thanks to appearing on Turkle's radio show. She published her first book, the big Gate in 1976 at the age of 69. She was a Chicago school teacher and a supervisor in the Illinois Department of Labor. This conversation was originally broadcast in
5: 1961. Hey, some folks can live and others die. Some folks like cake and others pie. And there's a loaf for every high. And there's a far for every night. Sometimes I often wonder why. Where there's a this, well there's a that. Where there's a tit, well there's a tat. Some folks can sit in another set, you got to spit before you spat. If that ain't true, I'll eat my hat. Where there's a crisp, well there's a cross. Something found or something lost. Some ride a mule, some ride a horse. A rolling stone don't catch no moss. Some things free, others cost. You work for me, that make me buzz. Well, now the land is dry, and the river's wet, some babies cry, and others fret, some folks press and others sweat, I feel me and ain't seen it yet, just how silly can I get? Some folks got hair, some wears a wig, some dance to wash, some dance to jig, some things zag, some things zig, some get it easy, others have to dig, I got my cow, you got your pig. Well, now, some folks get in and others wait. Some don't eat much and some lick the plate. And Some folks is early, others late. You go through the crack and I find the gate. You call it luck, I call it fate. Well, now, there's a smile for every frown. If I'm a fool, you gotta be a clown. If this is up, well, that's gotta be down. If this is square, well, that's gotta be round. Some folks swim, other folks drown. I knows how crazy all that sounds.
3: This then is rigmarole. It's called rigmarole, and it's done in dialect. Our artist in this instance, Elma Stuckey, who lives in Chicago. Elma, suppose you tell us a bit about this kind of poetry that you wrote in dialect. You you live in in the North
6: now. Yes, Yes, I do. But I was born and reared in Memphis, Tennessee. The way I became acquainted with the dialect, there was an old midwife named Rachel Wilson that lived close to us. And she used to visit our home and sit around. Uh, My mother was the mother of 11 children, and uh, they always used the doctor to deliver the baby. But Miss Wilson always would come and sit around when my mother was pregnant, which seemed to me now most of the time, uh, hoping that she would get a chance to, as she called it, catch the baby. Well, we weren't allowed in the room when she would come because... uh, She did a lot of talk about slavery time, and they didn't want us exposed to it at that time. She was an ex-slaver. Yes, she was. She was mulatto.
3: Was it her dialect that you are simulating so well? Yes, that's
6: exactly where I learned the The words. She talked. I find that uh, if you use the dialect in the way that I have used it, it tells a story, and it's uh, comical and sometimes there's a double play on words. To uh, understand the dialect and get the real meaning, you really have to hear it spoken. Uh, a
3: question arises, as you do dialect, it is so rich. This is this is not a Deep South dialect, is it? Uh, I suppose it is. It is. I it, tell you... Uh, and it's Memphis, you see. The way
6: it? I it's, understand it is uh, the Negro dialect was the Negro, African Negro's uh, inability to really uh, speak the English language when he was first brought over. And, of course, he had to uh, catch his catch can, so to speak. And I think it's uh, something that uh, the Negro need not be ashamed of. And I think it's really a part of our cultural background. In fact, I think it should be preserved.
4: You just heard Studs Terkel in conversation with poet Alma Stuckey. From the earliest epic poets some millennia ago, right up to the present, poets come pretty naturally to the news. Ezra Pound once defined literature, in fact, as news that stays news. And William Carlos Williams famously wrote, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. And Studs Terkel, in his conversations with poets, continually reminds us that the news is all around us and that poems, whether difficult or not, don't lack it.
3: In these times of of coolness and blandness, I couldn't care less-ism, it's refreshing to hear a voice that's clear, a voice that speaks out on behalf of definite aesthetic standards, such a voice as that of John Chardy. This is from a speech, an extract from a speech you yes. offered. You speak of literature itself serving the purpose of of enriching our lives, we're so accustomed to using it for another purpose.
0: The fundamental thing that literature does, that all the arts do, is to save Voices from the experience of the race on this planet, and you have to hear those best voices. You have to open your imagination to uh, to Job asking his question, and when you have really heard that question ringing, you know the difference between a great question and a, and a lesser one. An example that comes to my mind: when I was a kid, my uncle used to have a tremendous collection of those scratchy old orthophonic Caruso recordings and especially on rainy days, but all the time, I had a passion for Caruso. But when you heard this voice, you not only heard the songs being sung, you suffered an expansion of your imagination. You discovered how well it was possible to sing these songs. In the first place, you'd think, just in the animal quality of the singing, Caruso would hit a high note, and you'd say, this is as much as the human voice can do. You you couldn't ask more of the human voice. And then he'd be beyond that. He'd exceed the expectation. Textbook prose, if that's the word for it, states things. We're told them cold. For example, in a geography book, it might say things about Chicago. Chicago is the great port of the Great Lakes. A certain number of railroads come into Chicago. A certain number of animals come into the slaughterhouses, the these principal manufactories, and so forth. You see, one is not required to take any attitude toward this. These are, these are ideas. Uh, but what's the difference between these stated ideas about Chicago and the experience of Chicago uh, as one comes here to live? Well, you see, poetry, in a sense, takes you into an idea to live. It doesn't just tell you about it.
3: all going to write about Chicago. Yes,
0: this is the experience of the place. Well, while poetry does not deal in ideas. It deals in the experience of ideas. It's felt thought, not, not thought. It's felt thought.
4: That was Stud Terkel in conversation with John Chardy. Just as Elmer Stuckey found the news in the stories and cadences of former slaves, New Jersey-born poet John Chardy channeled Dante in his famous translation, other artists, and in the case of this poem that follows, his father.
7: Sunday by Sunday he took the train to his woods and walked under the trees to leave his print in his own land, a patron of seasons, I have done nothing as perfect as my father's Sunday on his useless lots. Gardens he dreamed from briar tangle and the swampy back slope of his ridge rose over him more flowering than Brazil. Maples transformed to figs and briar to blood-blue grapes in his look around, when he sat on a stone with his wine-jug and cheese beside him, his collar and coat on a branch, his shirt open his derby back on his head like a standing turtle. A big man he was. When he sang Celeste Aida, the woods filled as if a breeze was swelling through them. When he stopped, I thought I could hear the sound still moving. Well, I have lied, not so much lied as dreamed it. I was three when he died. It was someone else. My sister went with him under the trees. But if it was her memory then, it became mine so long since I will own nothing on it, having dreamed it from all the nights I was growing the wet-pants man of the family. I have done nothing as perfect as I have dreamed him from old wives' tales and the running of my blood." God knows what queer long darks I had no eyes for, followed his stairwell weeks to his Sunday breezeways. But I will swear the world is not well made that rips such gardens from the weak. Or I should have walked a saint's way to the cross and nail by nail hemmed out my blood to glory for one good reason.
3: I've played this at least 20 times, and every time I'm, I'm moved as though I heard it for the first well, time. Thank you so much. Is this out of memory?
0: You say you were three years kind of old. it's a confused memory, yeah. I mean, always a complicated thing, you see. I, I was the only son of an Italian family and the only man left in the family. Oh, all the relatives used to say, you know, you look like your father. This was my identity. This was my point for being in the family. Well, how, like, how could I have looked like him at, uh, at three? Uh, I, couldn't have, uh, I couldn't have remembered the thing, actually, that's why I say I lied. I was three when it happened, I couldn't have remembered it, but uh, it wasn't so much a lie as having dreamed it. I was given this to think about all the time I was growing up, and I knew where the, the thing was, and I seemed to remember having been in this place in Wilmington with him. Actually, I suspect what had happened is that I had taken my later memories and read them into an invented memory of him. Uh, it uh, is a strange notion at times. I thought maybe I was my father. I had to take his
4: place. That was Stud struggle in conversation with John Chiardi. Whether the subject is the legacy of slavery or the complications within an individual Italian family, one of the most exciting aspects of being a poet is the ability to speak in someone else's voice. You can tell your own story as if it were someone else's and someone else's story as if it were your own. And I think this empathy, this quality of human sympathy, inevitably enlarges you as a person. I'm struck also that both Chardy and Stuckey view themselves as links in a chain, whether that's a chain of history or a chain of poetry. Robert Polito, president of the Poetry Foundation. You've been listening to Studs Terkel in conversation with American poets. The Studs Terkel Radio Archive is managed by the WFMT Radio Network and the Chicago History Museum. It contains more than 7,500 interviews and will soon start to be accessible to the public. Take it easy, but take it at org. The producers are Tony Macaluso and Sarah Murphy, The executive producer is Steve Robinson. This is the WFMT Radio Network, Chicago.
2: School we, lurk late we, strike straight we, sing sin we, thin gin we, jazz june we, die soon.
0: Three times I laid the kingly wig on him, and thrice did he put it down. Was this the move of a greedy hipster? Well, oh, certainly the eloquence of Willie the Shake here. You I know think... why they call him Willie the Shake. Why? Because he. Shut sure. everybody.
3: Kerouac <laughs> said, well, this then would be a beat generation. Let's say I, everybody's beat, everybody's uh, sort of worn down to a point where they'd be able to receive God. Do you feel defeated for oh, getting no, the label no, beat no, it no, itself? No, no, I have so far have uh, reached God, I think, and I'm going to go beyond it now. What See, is there but, beyond God? Ah, that's it, and I'm going to find it.
4: In celebration of National Poetry Month, this is Studs Terkel in Conversation with American Poets, a series of short programs drawn from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, a collection of more than 7,000 programs from his daily radio show that aired on WFMT in Chicago. You just heard excerpts from talks with Gwendolyn Brooks, the incomparable Lord Buckley on Shakespeare, and the beat poets Peter Orlovsky, Allen Ginsberg, and Gregory Corso. I'm Robert Polito, president of the Poetry Foundation. Today, we hear from two very different poets, Howard Nemeroff and Gwendolyn Brooks. Yet both are formal masters reinvigorating and reinventing the traditional resources and forms of poetry. We focus on poems of memory and childhood, two divergent takes on a familiar subject for poetry, and how the past, especially a childhood sense of self, can persist into the present.
8: People are putting up storm windows now, or were this morning, until the heavy rain drove them indoors. So coming home at noon I saw storm windows lying on the ground, frame full of rain. Through the water and glass I saw the crushed grass, how it seemed to stream away in lines like seaweed on the tide, or blades of wheat leaning under the wind. The ripple and splash of rain on the blurred glass seemed that it briefly said as I walked by something I should have liked to say to you. Something the dry grass bent under the pane brimful of bouncing water. Something of a swaying clarity which blindly echoes this lonely afternoon of memories and missed desires while the wintry rain. Unspeakable the distance in the mind, runs on the standing windows, and away. The voice of one of our most eloquent younger poets, Howard Nemirov.
3: Uh, is this true? Am, am I right in saying, childhood figures strongly. And childhood sensations and memories and tenderness and innocence and truth as against the untruth of later things.
8: I suspect that uh, like anybody else I make up about half my childhood memories. I still have a kind of pious Freudian notion that whatever happens to you happens before you're six and that all the gathering of experience after that tends to be pretty largely repetition or at least things strike you because they're repetitions. I move by this as I am by it occurred to
3: me a poem of yours, I can't find the name, Dandelions. I remember that. Oh, yeah. I know we've been talking about some of your poems, and we, I'd forgotten to mention Dandelions, but I don't know why Dandelions hit me, if I could find it. I think it, it's
8: uh, further back in Further the book back
3: than that. This is one of your earlier poems. No, it's
8: not quite the, somewhere in the back of that second section.
3: Do you mind, ham-bone that I am, if I read <coughs> Dandelions? Wish you would. These golden heads these common suns, only less multitudinous than grass itself, that gluts the market of the world with green. They shine as lovely as their mean, fine as the daughters of the poor who go proudly in spangles of brass, light-headed, then headless, stalked for a salad. Inside a week they will be seen stricken and old ghosts in the field to be picked up at the lightest breath with brazen tops all shrunken in and swollen green gone withered white. You'll say it's nature's price for beauty that goes cheap, that being light is just the what makes girls grow heavy, and that the wind bearing their death whispers the second kingdom come. You'll say the fool of piety by resignations hanging on until, still justified, you drop. But surely the thing is sorrowful at evening when the lights go out slowly to see those ruined spinsters all down the field, that ghostly hair, dry sinners waiting in the valley for the last word in the next life and the liberation from the lion's mouth. I'm thinking of dandelions and dolls. I don't know why at this moment. Well,
8: that's uh, that's what it's about, I guess. I think there is one joke in it about the last line, or All I right. call jokes what I suppose people ought to refer to in some more pretentious way, that the lion is the French don de lion, the lion's tooth. It's a Catholic notion that libera or de ore leonis, you know, get us out of the lion's mouth. And well, I figure in the poem that the speaker is talking to some highly moral person who says, well, it serves them right they had their youth and their beauty and they behaved badly, and I'm For trying to say that yeah, yeah, even right. supposing they had, uh, it's very sad. Yeah. Quite a lot of things are very sad.
3: Did they behave badly? Because this is the question. They were flashy, they were beautiful. Yeah. They had their day, but the point is they're being punished by... and it's a phrase you use here, I mean, hit the dandelion at the end, this is a dandelion that's drooping slowly to see these ruined spinsters. All of the uh, the immature. Oh, well, the, you
8: know they. Yeah, when they go to seed, they turn yeah, white and then they yeah. puff away on the wind to make more dandelions uh, elsewhere. Yeah.
3: But you speak in favor of the dandelions, though. Yeah. I mean, they were. <laughs> you speak in favor and against many things. Here, yeah, what about the the poet?
4: And... That was Howard Nemeroff in conversation with Studs Terkel. Poems and poets track juxtapositions as much as continuities, and here we move from Howard Nemoroff's dandelions to Gwendolyn Brooks's Hungry Backyard Weeds. Uh, Gwendolyn,
3: we think of your poetry and oh, I suppose it's been described by so many critics in so many different ways, but the, the honesty of it, I suppose, is, 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 the, is the first uh, word that comes to mind, the honesty and the simplicity of it. What, what, what do you, what do you uh, feel when your poems are, are analyzed or, or criticized? What's your feeling?
2: Well, I read with great interest everything that's said. I myself have only tried to uh, record life and, and interpret it as I have seen it.
3: Is this your fir- was that your first volume of poetry, A Street in Bronzeville? Yes, uh,
2: published in forty-five.
3: This was in forty-five. Mm-hmm. You won the Pulitzer Prize for Annie Allen. That was some five years later, wasn't it? Yes. And we think of the title itself, A Street in Bronzeville. This be what... Basically, would you say this is a poetic record of your, of your uh, observations of the community itself?
2: Yes, a record of my observations and in some part of my experiences. Certain things in, the, in all the books have happened to me or to people that I have known, and uh, I've colored and interpreted as best I could.
3: Gwendolyn, the, the, the whole world then is found really... In Bronzeville, whether it's Matthew Cole, whether it's the event, whether it's the mother, and whether it's uh the girl I like who, who whose song in the front yard. He we was Well, attack. that
2: girl was myself. <laughs> My mother was very careful of her her children and uh, at a certain time, well, we had to come into the front yard and stay there. We couldn't go wandering down the block anymore, and we used to envy the children who were free enough to do this. So I wrote, I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want a peek at the back, where it's rough and untended and hungry weed grows. A girl gets sick of a rose. I want to go in the backyard now and maybe down the alley to where the charity children play. I want a good time today. They do some wonderful things, they have some wonderful fun. My mother sneers, but I say it's fine how they don't have to go in at quarter to nine. My mother, she tells me that Johnny May will grow up to be a bad woman, that George will be taken to jail sooner or late, on account of last winter he sold our back gate. But I say it's fine, honest I do, and I'd like to be a bad woman too and wear the brave stockings of night-black lace and strut down the streets with paint on my face.
3: Oh, Gwendolyn Brooks, what things you are telling us about yourself. <laughs> and you, you were wondering at the beginning, you said, you think you're inarticulate when it comes? Sometimes I am what is known as glib but you are truly articulate in what you write and even in the things you say with such economy. Even now, I was thinking, as uh, this poem, your admiration for the rebel, too, is there, seems to be there.
2: Yes, Um, I believe I do have such an admiration, in part, at any (laughs) rate.
3: So we've been just hitting a few of the poems, uh, touching a few of the poems from a street in Bronzeville. Then, was there any... uh, uh, in your childhood memories or in later years, was there any one or any kind of poet who, who you felt had the most impact upon you?
2: In childhood years, I can't say. When I was 13, 12 and 13, I began to uh, be interested in Shakespeare and poets such as Wordsworth and Tennyson and Shelley, the the conventional loves yeah. of youth, I believe first loves, I should say, because I think we all still admire those poets.
4: That was Gwendolyn Brooks' reading from a street in Bronzeville, her first book, which was published in 1945, also the year that she first appeared in Poetry Magazine. In the movement from Nemeroff to Brooks, I think you can hear one of the distinctive characteristics of Chicago modernism, which I think more than Almost any other great poetry I can think of in the 20th century is rooted in place, and that's true of Carl Sandburg, Edgar Lee Masters, and Gwendolyn Brooks. There's a fascinating coincidence here. Poetry Magazine was founded in 1912, which also was the year of Studs Terkel's birth. And I'm struck by the way these two great modernist institutions flow together over the past century, always seeking to discover new voices, new ideas, in new forms, rooted at once in Chicago, America, and the world, at once local, national, and global.
1: In the evening, in the evening, In the evening, darling Out of cloud When the sun go down Yes it's so lonesome It's so lonesome Out of cloud When the one you love Is not around When the sun go down
4: I'm Robert Polito, president of the Poetry Foundation. You've been listening to Studs Terkel in conversation with American poets. The Studs Terkel Radio Archive is managed by the WFMT Radio Network and the Chicago History Museum. It contains more than 7,500 interviews and will soon start to be accessible to the public. Take it easy or take it at studsturkel.org. The producers are Tony Macaluso and Sarah Murphy, the executive producer is Steve Robinson. This is the WFMT Radio Network, Chicago.
1: Evening in the evening out of cloud when the sun go down When the sun go down You've been listening to a couple of segments of Studs Terkel Speaking with Poets playing this in honor of the end of National Poetry Month and playing it in place of making waves while the crew is not here at the station. Coming up next for the rest of the half hour, we're going to go now to the Women's International News Gathering Service, or WINGS. Well, we've never seen anything like this crisis, and in 30 years on the air, WJFF has never had a pledge drive quite like this one. But you know what? It worked. Thanks to you, we made our goal. You made sure WJFF could stay focused in keeping community connected and informed. You stood up for your community radio station. You made it happen. Thank you for supporting WJFF Radio Catskill.
9: Today, from the Wings Archive, some genderqueer history.
10: There's a river of birds in my grave.
9: Welcome to WINGS, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world, produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. Back in 1996, Caitlin Sullivan and Kate Bornstein spoke with Susu Priano about their new novel, Nearly Roadkill, An infobon Erotic Adventure. Based on the author's own explorations of non-binary sex, on the nascent worldwide Web. In this second decade of the 21st century, the book is being revived as classic queer science fiction dealing with issues that are still contentious
11: today. Hi everybody, my name is Sue Supriano, and my guests today are Caitlin Sullivan and Kate Bornstein. And it's going to be a very interesting conversation. They are both authors and have written Uh, a book together called Nearly Roadkill, An Infobon Erotic Adventure, that is the one they wrote together, and Kate Bornstein wrote Gender Outlaw on Men, Women, and the Rest of Us. Kate Bornstein is a transsexual person who has gone from a male to a female, right? Is that how you identify? That's the whole subject of the book is how, all about this gender identification. And here I am asking you this question, trying to put you in a box right off the bat. Right.
12: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, which book did you, did you, where were you referring to? Uh, which book do you,
11: which book how do you identify it? According to which book? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. It, it well, kind of talk changes. about that. Talk it
12: kind of it. kind of changes. Well, you know, I started out um, male in the culture, and um, yeah, I went through all the. The surgeries and and the hormones and the psychiatric whatevers, and figured okay, great i 'm a woman, I have arrived, I am woman, hear me roar, and so I roared, but it really wasn 't very womanly, and um, I decided woman wasn 't right either, and t- tossed that one aside for favor of um, not man, not woman. That's kind of how I identify now, which led, I think, a great deal to the, the novel, Nearly Roadkill. What Caitlin and I are fond of saying is that if gender outlaw is the theory, then uh, Nearly Roadkill is the practical.
11: Mm-hmm. And in Nearly Roadkill, you are writing to each other uh, on the net, on the Internet,
10: Well, the two fictional characters are, yes. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) Right. Snatch and wink. Scratch. (laughs) Scratch.
11: Oh, my God. (gasps) My God, do I have to start over? I want to go back on that.
12: No, that's great. That's great. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's Scratch. Scratch and wink. Uh, are the two Mm -hmm. main characters of Nearly Roadkill, (laughs) and they're basically uh, two people who meet on the net and have this wonderful round of cyber sex, uh, fall for each other, uh, and decide at the end of it that they really don't want to know what the other person is in their real life, you know, what gender, what race, what age. Uh, and then they're not particularly interested in telling what they are, so they agree not to tell. And all during the course of the book, they, they meet in different ages and races and genders and combinations. And sometimes they know it's the other person and sometimes they don't, but they always keep falling for each other. It's kind of a love story.
11: Right. And then there are all these different rooms and ways in which to meet. Not only can you have different uh, identities, but you meet in different places, so it's on the net. Right,
10: Caitlin? Right. And, and they also have to encounter their own prejudices, that normally they might cross the street to avoid someone like that. And then they find themselves having a great conversation and, in fact, falling in love and hating the way that the prejudices come up inside them. Oh, I realize if you were this normally in my offline life... I wouldn't have a conversation with you. And they get very frustrated with themselves and they get frustrated with each other. And uh, that's part of the fun is watching them deal with things quite close up. I mean, you, if you have a correspondence with somebody, email or otherwise, and you find yourself hitting those prejudices, do you hide that from the other person? Do you explore it together? What do you do? So that's one of the things that's fun and nearly roadkill to watch develop and evolve. Mm-hmm. And we have so many
11: prejudices and uh the one you're particularly looking at is is gender i really love the way that you bring that up to the light because so few people are thinking uh critically or not as many as i would like <laughs> they are thinking critically these days and race is something that i'm always trying to talk about my particular uh passion a lot of people have, have said oh you're so interested in that most of us aren't so interested in that subject mm-hmm you know, just using these words and making these assumptions like there's some kind of absolute truth it, without really thinking about it and kind of just having the arguments based on common assumptions that we're, we're talking about some kind of truth and then we we disagree. Anyway, it, I'm, I'm sure you can probably be more articulate about it than I, but that's what you seem to be doing about gender. To, to some extent.
12: Well, yeah. Um On the Internet, you're sitting there at your computer. You're typing into a keyboard and words appear on a screen. You don't know where they're appearing or who's looking at them. The words come back at you and you, you get into a conversation. I remember, and we do have one section in uh the novel, that um, one of the characters, Wink, is talking with Scratch and... um she's going on and on and on and on about this, that, and the other thing, And, and Scratch says, well, wait a minute, you don't know my race. What if, you know, what if I was, you know, a person of color? And Wink just goes totally red in the face, going, oh my God, you know, I never thought of it, I just assumed. And it's that kind of prejudicial thinking, I think, where we just assume white if we're white. Uh, we just assume that a person is traditionally gendered if we're traditionally gendered. Uh, we assume, we, we ask a question, male or female, uh, not knowing that quite a few people in the culture are beginning to identify as neither. And those are some of the points we, we hope to bring up. Yeah, in in the book,
11: mm-hmm. I understand a lot of people actually do. uh It's not uncommon to go on the internet and be a different gender and race and whatever. Is is that so? Do you know much about that? Katie? Yeah,
10: it, the, it used to be that the majority of people online were men, and they were. There was about 80% white males on the net. As women started coming on and people of color started coming on, they started noticing the offline values were still there. For example, if I went on and I said, my name is Caitlin, or if I said, my name is Susan, I would be targeted with personal messages saying, hey, baby, hey, baby, you want to go on a date? No different than going out in the street. And here I am in my pajamas at my computer, you know, with no, no worries about that. And I, I got so frustrated. I was like, my God. And so I picked... Um, i can't remember what my first neutral name was i think it was sandy or, or chris or something like that so that i wouldn't be treated that way and sure enough i went back into the same room and i you know it was such a vast difference it was like what do you think about the state of politics today chris you know it was such a difference that then after getting kind of frustrated that it had happened that way initially then i started getting emboldened that i could go on to any room and be anything. Um, I could also say I was younger. <laughs> I could say I was older. It depends. Um, I could say I was a gay man. I could say anything I wanted. And I got into, I got, the most important thing to me was that I got to listen to people who normally would not talk to this particular white female. And that was amazing. Um, and I just listened a lot. So that was the main thing that was just fascinating to
11: you, to pursue this. How about you, Kate? For me, I think
12: the the great joy came from holding simultaneous conversations. You can have um, a lot of little windows opening up on your computer and have these private conversations. And in one, I might be... Uh, a 23-year-old skateboard dude, and another one I might be uh, a, a divorcee, kind of 45-year-old woman secretary talking to another divorcee, 25-year-old woman secretary, at least that's what she said she was, and yet another one I could be a gay muscle dude, you know, and another one I could be um, a little transvestite girl who likes to put on mustaches and be a boy and having them all simultaneously. That's my joy because that for me, what Caitlin came up with, with a wonderful term and I think you should really explain it, the whole idea of traction, mm. um, and how, how we lose traction in identity.
10: Okay. That's a cue. <laughs> One of the things that we noticed right off the bat, although we had been doing a lot of this in theory in our letters to each other, was how much you hold on to your various identities. And even if you get rid of, okay, I'm no longer a student, I'm no longer um, a radio person, I'm no longer... There are some you just hold on to for life, and a lot of them are cultural, and a lot of them are what you're raised with. So we were trying, in our work with gender, to meet each other online with no gender, with no anything and to see if desire was still there and we found we got pretty freaked out that you need something to hold on to democrat female um, toothpaste user whatever something that'll make you feel connected to something even if it's transitory so we found ourselves going who am i who am i who am i if you won't say who you are or what you are what does that make me and so it was experiencing a loss of traction and there's a sense of literally vit- vertigo. In fact, we had one person who interviewed us who experienced not being able to step on the subway, realizing that if she was not this or that or the other, if she was going to let go of all those things, how would she know what she was going to do that day? How much we root ourselves through the course of even an hour in cat owner, um, you know, resident of California, whatever it is. And we found that we could not get very far when we tried to do Uh, no traction. We could get, we could get rid of gender for a while, but we couldn't get rid of top and bottom. Somebody had to have power. Um, and we were just, you know, it was like, damn, why can't we do this? But at least, you know, we at least pushed the envelope a little further than what you do when you encounter people on the street.
11: Right. I'm just thinking about the Buddhist, uh, the notion of there is no, uh, there is no I. There's no separation. There's no identity. It's all impermanent, changing, what we call emptiness. And that's really what you're dealing with, that groundlessness. So it's deep.
12: Uh, one of the characters at one point, um, quotes, um, Huang Tzu, uh, Taoist, uh, philosopher, Chinese Taoist philosopher, who says that the purpose, the mouse, the mouse trap exists for the purpose of the mouse. Once you've got the mouse, you don't need the mouse trap. Similarly, the fishing pole exists for the purpose of the fish. You've got a fish, you can forget about the pole. He goes on to say that words exist for the purpose of their meaning. Once you've got their meaning, you don't need the words and he said he summed it up by saying he was looking for someone who had forgotten the words so that they could sit down and have a meaningful conversation mm-hmm. and i took from this and what we got from this out of the book and this whole idea of identities is i i i i'm coming to the opinion that identities exist for the purpose of connection and relationship once you've got connection and relationship you can forget the identities and me i'm i'm looking for someone who has forgotten identities so that we might have a meaningful
11: <laughs> well, and you certainly have been uh, closer to this identity question than than most people. Although probably most people uh, deal with it a lot more than they talk about. You're, you're you're saying, "I don't know." Is from the look on your face, Kate Bornstein
12: yeah I assume you're talking about the whole gender deal um, yeah i 'm changing my gender several times in one lifetime i i don 't think that's any more startling or any more profound than someone getting sober after they 've been you know an active alcoholic for fourteen years i don 't think it 's any more profound than someone coming out of the closet as gay or a gay person coming out of the closet as bisexual or or a lesbian separatist coming out of the closet as you know yeah i mean i 'm heterosexual and that 's what it is um, we, we we all go through profound changes. And right now, yeah, it's sexy, it's chic, uh, transsexuality hasn't been talked about, but it's no more profound than uh, other changes people go through. And that's what we try to get to in Nearly Roadkill through these two characters, Scratch and Wink, uh, unwittingly, running afoul of a government plot to put us all in these little boxes, these commercialized boxes, so that they can promote to us much better. Um, they unwittingly unite all the citizens of the web in in, in a common struggle. And then it's the commonality, I think, that, that, that's the key. Uh-huh.
9: From the Wings Archive, you're listening to Kate Bornstein and Caitlin Sullivan telling Sue Supriano about their novel Nearly Roadkill. An Infobahn Erotic Adventure, based on their explorations of non-binary sexuality in the early years of the World Wide Web. It was published by High Risk Books in 1996 and was nearly 400 pages long.
11: I have to admit to the listeners that I read part of the book and I wish I had time to read more. It's written in an unusual style. It's all different kind, bold print and that bold print, and it's different different spaces on the page, and it's the most unusual and reminds you of a computer for sure. Uh, did did you know each other before you started? I, I had the um, idea uh, before we started this interview that you did not know each other before you started writing this book over the the uh, Internet, but you said, no, that's not true. But tell, tell
10: me some, if you would, about how you did write this book, Nearly Roadkill. Okay. We're trying to emulate the world of the computer. We're also trying to target to people who have had a lot of experience on the net and those who've never turned on a computer. Um, we're both really literature nuts, and, and we would never want to abandon books, you know, for, for computers. So we use different fonts. We indent the text. We do things to show transitions. And uh, Kate can talk a little more about written speech. But Kate and I were friends through the through the mail, you know, the snail mail, and we're writing long uh, theories about gender. And I was asking a lot of questions and she was asking a lot of questions of me and the book grew out of that and i feel in some ways that there is the way we knew each other before we went online together to write the book and the way we learned who each other was online because we would literally go on as these characters okay you be wink i'll be scratched let's say they're going to meet as a heterosexual couple tonight okay let's go and we had no idea where we we're going to go that's all we had it was like an improvised play next night okay let's be two gay men it was very strange. And then we would have email about the experience. Wow, that blew my mind the the time you went da 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 da, you know. The meta communication. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, we, we fashioned a plot after having several talks like that. We decided to write the book and fashioned a plot and we thought it'd just be a matter of saving all those wonderful chats and wrapping them up in three months and then there'd be a book. Of course, that turned out not to be true and we had to make a real plot you know, with real chapters and all that. But there was also the, the the other meta-conversation was about the book itself, you know, where we would despair at certain places that we'd gotten to, like the thing about no traction, um, or realize that we had terrible prejudices that we didn't want to admit to ourselves or to each other. And we would have live chats with each other about it because Kate was in San Francisco and I was in Seattle and it's cheaper to go online.
11: And you'd never laid eyes on <coughs> each other, really? Oh,
10: no, we had. Oh, but we it had been a year by then i think uh and then we'd see that we had seen each other or something like that i can't remember but while, that yeah. was the majority of that was where we related was online so yeah typing our little keyboards late into the night and then we started saving those chats and realizing the characters could go there too the characters could get freaked out <coughs> and say you know, I don't like what just happened. And we went went ahead and saved that. We got very, very brave about saving everything, even if it was something that made us embarrassed or uh, made us realize we weren't as liberal as we thought and blah, 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 blah.
11: So you had to get over that embarrassment, I guess, to publish it, put it out there.
12: Well, I think that's what makes, um, when I, re- when I like to read, I like to see people get in touch with their own weaknesses and to start taking them on as challenges. And scratch and wink and nearly road killer, no exceptions. Um, early on in the book, we say one's confused and one's addicts. And, um, uh, but for, for, for quite a few good reasons. And those reasons come out over the course of the book. And they do, they, 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 like to use the metaphor of, I'm, I'm gnawing on this one, I'm gnawing on this one like a bone. They both like to use that one, and they don't let go of it, of things, and they, and they do hang in there. At one point, uh, one of them wants to just say, okay, goodbye, have a good life. And the other one says, uh, uh-uh, uh, you're not getting away with it that easily. No, 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 we're gonna get to know each other here. And that's the kind of person I like to be with, that's the kind of person I like to read about.
11: Mm -hmm. And it's actually uh, more easy than in many uh, books to follow these things going on simultaneously, or different conversations going on because of the different fonts you use and the way it's arranged in the book. Did you want to say something about that, Kate? Oh,
12: yeah. um, We... What, what happens on the net is, is is, you're typing. You're typing as though you were talking. You're not typing as though you're writing a letter to someone because it's live. It's happening back and forth and back and forth. And so a lot of the language in the in early roadkill is written speech, not literature. Uh, these are people talking. Both Caitlin and I have a theatrical background. And we're used to writing dialogue for actors on stage. Um, and I think you were saying something about Mark Twain. This, mm-hmm. This has some... Could you? Because I'm not so, quite so literary knowledge that
10: I'm just gonna. Could you put the microphone over to her? Stage direction. Well, just said lots of different. Um, Anthony Burgess, that's it. Anthony Burgess wrote Clockwork Orange and he changed literature with using different language. He used um, slang of, of London street punks and he had to have a glossary to follow it. Um, the same with mark twain you know he changed literature by actually writing down a dialect that he knew from his boyhood days in mississippi it's become more common now um, uh... and a lot of a lot of literature reflects lots of different kinds of ways of speaking we're not being forced so much to accept the sort of oxford english ways of speaking, people don't talk that way. And I'm glad to see literature, you know, expanding to reflect how people really talk. So in some ways, we're doing something like that in reflecting what the online language is, which is fascinating. There's abbreviations, there's shorthand, there's there's a whole language in and unto itself. I mean, you, if you have to get um, up from your keyboard to go to the bathroom in the middle of a chat, you know, you don't want to type all that out. You would type BRB, which means be right back. And everybody knows why, you know, or maybe you're getting a cup of coffee. And there's, there's those kinds of things, and that in turn influences the slang that happens offline. Uh-huh. And I might uh, say
11: that this is a very erotic uh, book, to say the least, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, the, the, the sexy chats, which is an understatement.
12: Uh, yeah, this will... In, in any when any new technology comes along be it uh, radio television ham radio uh, letters telephones one of the first things it gets grabbed and used for is sex and desire and sexual connection and um, at first I was kind of embarrassed about that and I was going well there's not all that much sex on the net I mean but there is there's lots of it it's tons of it and um, the way scratch and wink meet is the way a lot of people typically meet on the net um they, they connect at the point of their heart's desire. There, there, there's something really animal. There's something very passionate. But then, and this is what happens on the net, which is so beautiful because the net, again, as Caitlin was saying, is safe. You're not going to get beat up for stuff. Once it's over. You can talk with each other. You've established the connection, and we see we watch what happens. Is okay? Yeah, well, they they keep doing lots of sex things, and that's great. But more and more and more, they're getting deeper and deeper with each other, which actually ends up making their sex better. Mm-hmm.
11: <laughs> It's interesting, I think, about this uh, thing that I've heard about, the difference between uh, men and women, and one of these uh, things about what is the difference between men, explorations of what is the difference between men and women, yeah. that women uh, need intimacy to feel sexual and men need sexuality fe- to feel intimate. I don't know if you want to comment on that <laughs>
10: and how it relates to the uh-huh. Internet well, or anything else. Actually, I have been of that belief too, but I have been surprised, having surfed in different personas, having had sex with a man as a man, having sex with um a woman as a man, having sex with a woman as a woman online, I find that different people want levels of intimacy. Um, depending on the day and where they're from as much as anything else. I've been surprised, as Kate was saying, you get down to the essence of what a person is. If a man who typically we see, a white man, we typically see as having a lot of power in this culture, gets to go online without that persona for once, without dragging all his power along, I've found incredible vulnerabilities in those men. I've found them deeply wishing to be equal. Um, I'm not saying that it, you know, within every white man beats the heart of an equal egalitarian, <laughs> I would never go that far, but, but I've been surprised. And I've, again, those were some of the prejudices I had to drop as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you can have that kind of hard and fast rule, although I've been operating under it for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
12: Well, I think, you know, that, um, you know which came first, the, the, you know, the rule or, um, or, or, the fact that we follow it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that on the net, uh, rules and assumptions show up very, very, very loudly. It's kind of someone like, it's like wearing a white t-shirt and so you spill spaghetti sauce all over it. Um, they show up. We, someone says, why? They're not afraid to ask questions on the net. You know, you know if someone says, well, uh, I'm a guy, I only date... Uh, I, ha- I have to know whether you're a man or a woman because I'm a guy and I only date women. You can go, why? And they can go, you know, I hadn't thought about that. They have that. They also have that safety. They they can let down that uh, macho whatever that they have to keep up in their daily lives, or they get trampled or eaten, uh, you know, by by the, by their their office mates. Uh, and they can they can just say, I, I want to think about that. I'll get back to you. Send me some email or whatever.
11: Well, I'd like to talk a, a little bit on the very little bit of time we left, have left here about the issue of co- the commercial, commercialness of the internet. And I think that you address that in your book, Nearly Roadkill, of uh, Caitlin Sullivan and Kate Bornstein. You're nodding, Caitlin?
10: Yeah. yeah. Well, Every medium has also, in the same way that every medium gets used for sex, every medium also gets used for business and commercials. And the thing about the net that's very different, although there are similarities, is that it's two-way. It's instantaneously two-way. So, for example, the first time a couple of lawyers went out on the net to advertise their business, they were, <clears throat> they were completely slammed because they were seen as what they were, which is opportunistic and, and uh, self-aggrandizing, where, whereas this is a, an area of people being equal. But what is happening now is that commercial services are offering better access to the net, easier access, more and more people can get on, and in turn they want to know what toothpaste you use, what gender you are, so they can assume that you want pantyhose ads. So some of the same things are happening. What we're trying to do in Nearly Roadkill is have what would happen if all those people said, no, I don't want to know about pantyhose. (laughs) I sure don't. (laughs)
11: Like, and, and how about this whole gender issue? Do you feel like you've really stirred up a lot of conversation about it on the net or anywhere else?
10: Well, we hope so. We, yeah. you know, controversy is great, but, um, we're not the first to do that. Uh, the gender-free pronouns that we came up with, we, uh, took one of them from the net. People have started using those those pronouns like the word Z, Z-E, and here, H-I-R, um, because when you're trying to have a philosophical discussion, you don't want to get hung up on she or he, he or she, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, gender is a big thing on the net. Lots of people are exploring it from lots of different angles that we've never even thought of.
11: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well. Kate Bornstein is also a performer, and Caitlin Sullivan is also a radio producer, and they are the co-authors of Nearly Roadkill, an Infobahn erotic Invent- adventure, and Kate Bornstein also wrote Gender Outlaw. Thank you very much. My name's Sue Supriano. Thanks for listening.
9: We are sad to report that the interviewer on this story, Sue Supriano, has passed away. The novel Nearly Roadkill, an Infobahn erotic adventure, by Caitlin Sullivan and Kate Bornstein, was published in 1996 and is now out of print. Its website has also been taken down. But reviews and articles about it continue to appear, and it's been assigned as a text for a 2019 course on queering science fiction. In 2018, its continued relevance was attested in a review by Bogi Takash. Takash writes, If we can get past the technical details of an almost entirely text-only Internet, where the term website still needs to be laboriously explained, we find some of the most groundbreaking discussions about gender and sexuality in speculative fiction—discussions that are still just as powerful as when they were written. Wink is a non-binary person who had previously lived as a trans woman, while Scratch is the kind of second-wave feminist cis woman who wants to abolish gender. Their views clash very sharply, and all the terrible arguments that surface are disputes that still play out today. To hear Wings programs again, email wings at wings.org, or for very recent shows, visit our new website, wingsradio.org, slash WordPress. Wings thanks all our supporters, including your local community radio station, Suzette Cullen and Genevieve Vaughan. Whose work on the gift economy can be found at gift-economy.com. The Wing Sound logo is from Libana's album, A Circle Is Cast. I'm Frieda Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering Service.
1: Everyone in the country has just one chance to be counted every 10 years. And everyone counts, regardless of age, race, income, or immigration status. If you aren't counted, your community risks losing millions of dollars for schools, roads, bridges, Medicare, senior housing, and more. You can fill out the 2020 Census online at 2020census.gov, by phone at 844-330-2020, or by mail. This message is sponsored by a grant from the Census Bureau to the Wayne County Community Foundation.
8: WJFF, Jeffersonville, W233AH, Monticello.
1: Social distancing has created a lot of questions about COVID-19. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us tonight for the National Conversation with All Things Considered. We take the questions you've asked, whether it's about the disease or how to cope with the news, and we bring on experts to give you answers. The National Conversation with All Things Considered from NPR News. Tonight,